Good morning. Did you guys enjoy those kids? Wasn't that wonderful? Uh, we, we love doing those kind of things uh, with the kids, uh, knowing in a large part that a lot of those kids aren't saved, correct? I mean, that's, we understand that, but we have to come up to the knowledge of the Lord to understand salvation, then to respond to it. But even as we were praying this morning, uh, how aw- awesome it is that we have a church that would still allow these children up on stage as our parents are teaching them and making them, as Scripture says, wise unto salvation. And as these kids are learning the lyrics to this music, they are learning real things about Christ and the gospel and their parents, thus making them wise into salvation. So when the time comes, God uncovers their eyes, lifts the veil, and they can respond to the gospel. How wonderful is that? Isn't that cool? So it wasn't just a performance for you guys. It was for their own spiritual growth and hopes that they too would come to know Christ. And that's what we're here to do is, is help people understand who Christ is and what he has done. And what's important for us to understand is we have to know who Christ really is, not who uh, you say he is, not who I say he is, but who he really is, how scripture conveys him to, for us to know who he is in reality. As a matter of fact, throughout history, this is one of the big problems uh, in Christian history is that people see Christ and they define Christ in their own terms or how they think they see him opposed to how he really is. To prove that, in 325 AD, uh, there was a heresy going around in Christendom. Right? There was this heresy by Arius, and we now know it as Arianism, and Arius uh, told people and was teaching that Jesus wasn't an eternal being equal to the Father, but that he was a created being from God the Father. And so he wasn't eternally God, as we know and as we believe that Jesus is equal with God. And so Constantine, at the time the emperor of Rome, uh, called together all of the, the leaders, all of the, the pastors from all over uh, the, the kingdom and brought them together in Nicaea and said, you guys need to get this figured out as if any man can figure that out. That's all up to the Spirit and him leading. And the praise is, is as they got together, the Spirit had led them uh, through wisdom and the council uh, to come to the conclusion that Christ is indeed equal to the Father. He's of the same essence, homoousius. Jesus and God are of the same essence. But that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is during uh, the debate and during the council, uh, St. Nicholas, a.k.a. Santa Claus, uh, who is an avid defender of the deity of Jesus Christ, uh, was so angry when he was listening to Arius on stage, so to speak, explaining why he believes that Jesus isn't God. And Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, walks right up there, slaps him right in the face in front of everybody. Uh, And that is just to show you that when you tell your kids about the historical St. Nicholas, you need to tell him there's one thing you need to know about Santa Claus, and it's that he loves Jesus and he wants to make sure you understand who he is. All right, and that's historical. That's in your history books, okay? And this morning, the reason we bring that up is because it's important for us to have a right understanding of who Christ is, especially when we look at the text that we just read in Isaiah 9-6, because we're, getting to, we're looking at a text, at least a name of Jesus here, uh, that if you're not careful, you're going to not only misunderstand this text, uh, you're either going to ascribe things to Christ Uh, that you don't understand, or you might be confusing Christ with God and God with Christ. You could be committing all kinds of heresy, Uh, not just Arianism, but modalism, 
we don't have, we're not have time to talk about that, but the reality that we get into is to say, okay, I don't want to get this wrong, but I also don't want to skip over it, which is the concern, isn't it? That when we see something we don't understand, which so many of us often do, when we see something in Scripture we don't understand, we're just so tempted to say, well, I'll just skip that one and go on to the next part that I do understand. But God put it there for us to understand it, to help us live for the Lord because and in light of what the Bible teaches about Christ. And so because of that, we can't just skip over difficult texts or difficult names when it comes to knowing Christ. As a matter of fact, for us, as we look in this text, it talks about Christ being our everlasting Father. Well, that could be problematic, couldn't it? Because only God is the Father, Christ is the Son. And so how can we be looking here and seeing there's a child that's born to us and his name will be Everlasting Father? I can't say that Jesus is also the Father because that is the definition of modalism, which is a heresy that people in the past have believed and some even today believe. And we can't say that because it's untrue. But how do we understand what this means without skipping over it? And that's the whole point. Because if we want to recognize Jesus' role as everlasting Father, and I hope you, like me, when you read this, you really want to know, how is Jesus our everlasting Father? Because if I can know that, there's something there for me to apply to my life that I can live for the Lord knowing that Jesus is my everlasting Father without also committing heresy, without also misunderstanding what the Bible is saying about Jesus. And so for us, to recognize Jesus' role as our everlasting Father is going to require something of us. We're going to have to carefully inspect what I suspect this text is talking about, which is the covenants of God, particularly two. One, God's promise to King David, and two, God's promise to Father Abraham. And we understand these two covenants in light of the names of Christ in Isaiah 9. We're going to have a lot of confidence to see that Jesus is indeed our everlasting Father. So this morning, what I want to do is give you two reasons why you can call Jesus your everlasting father and not get slapped by Santa Claus. All right. So the first thing I want you to do, I want you to jot down Matthew 1.1. Just jot it down on your notes. Matthew 1.1. Matthew 1.1 says this. It's the beginning of the book of Matthew. And so Matthew is setting the stage for what exactly he is going to say for the next 28 chapters in the gospel of Matthew. And here's how he starts his entire gospel. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And so when we look at this text, we understand that Matthew wants us to understand Christ in relationship to two people in scripture. One is King David, and one is Father Abraham. And so when we look at the text, we understand that Matthew's saying, we need to understand that everything I'm about to say after this is proving that Jesus is both the son of David and the son of Abraham in relationship to the heir of the throne of David and the promises of Abraham. And so therefore, what we have to understand is we look in this text and we look at Christ, we got to understand how does this connect from what God has said in the Old Testament and how it's fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. So this morning, we're going to look at two covenants briefly. And the first one I want you to look at, it's the first covenant, although it's the second in chronology in the, in the scriptures, it's the first one I want us to look at, and you find it in 2 Samuel 7. So open up your Bible. 
there to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a, the promise that God had made to Father Abraham, sorry, King David, in the Old Testament, that we call it the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, this is what God says to David through the prophet Nathan. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so when you die, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And so there, we, if you know your, your Old Testament history, you understand that the son of David was Solomon, who did indeed build the temple that David wanted to build. But continue reading. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, there's something that Solomon couldn't do. Solomon, too, just like his father David, was going to die. And so there's something happening here in the promise that God is making to David that will make the promise that he's making everlasting, that it will extend beyond time and space into eternity. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Okay, because you already see where I'm going, that we're talking about Jesus here. But yet we're then left with a, an issue here uh, because it says when he sins, right? when he commits iniquity. And, and we ask the question, well, I thought Jesus never sinned. Well, you're correct that he's never sinned. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrew, Hebrews connects that promise to Hebrews Chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, when he says this about Jesus, although he was a son, just like the Davidic covenant promised, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. And so that isn't a text about the sin of Christ. This is a text all about the fact that the sin of man was placed onto Christ on our behalf. That was a text of substitutionary atonement that we see that he, God will discipline Christ with the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men in our place. And so therefore, when we read that, we see it pointing to Christ as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. And then it says this in verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you in your house. I love this in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Think about that. The big problem in the Old Testament was that the people of God couldn't be in the presence of God. And so God had to make a way through the sacrificial system for people to be in his presence. And yet here we're, we're left with the promise here in verse 16 that your house, O David, and your kingdom shall be made forever, sure, in my presence before me. That whoever fulfills this promise, the people who are in this promise will be forever in my presence. And your throne, O David shall be established forever. That's the Davidic covenant, or what we'd call God's promise to David. And God, it sums it up like this. God promised to David that there will be a king forever on his throne in the presence of God for eternity. And there's only one person who can fulfill that. And it's not just because we believe in mythical things, or I just believe what the next person told me, or you believe what the next person told you. But there's only one person that has been resurrected from the dead who never died again. We see people in the New Testament uh, who did die, 
and who did come back to uh, Lazarus. He, he died, didn't he? Uh, Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. But what happened later? They died again. But there was only one resurrection that both was raised to never die again, allowing the immortality of them to fulfill the promise that we speak of, of the establishment of an eternal throne, and that sole privilege belongs to Christ. So therefore, we have a king on the throne forever. So therefore, it is this eternal status of Jesus' reign and Jesus' authority that ought to make us do this, and it's point number one on your outline. I want you to write this. You need to heighten your view of Jesus. Heighten your view of Jesus. I know it's simple, but if we look at our lives and do a little introspection, we recognize that we don't exalt Jesus in the way that we ought to. And especially this time of year when we spend so much time thinking about Jesus in a manger, we don't spend enough time thinking about Jesus on his throne. And it's the most important thing about the fact that there is a baby in the manger because that baby in the manger was always and eternally the heir of the throne of David, God's promise to the world. I want to turn you to two scriptures, at least jot them down, that will help you heighten your view of Jesus this Christmas season. And the first one, you're going to see it in Revelation 11.15. Jot that down, Revelation 11.15. There in Revelation 11.15, you have John, the apostle, in a vision in the heavens, and he says this. He he's heard the, the seventh angel blew, blow his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying this. This is as, as Christ is going to reign in eternity. This is seen as the eschatological hope that we have as the end times come near. This is what is going to happen. The angels and the loud voices in heaven said this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Did you hear the end of, the, did you hear the end of that? Right? The promise was that there was going to come a time, because of the covenant of David... That there would be one who is his heir who will reign forever on the throne. That was promised in history past. And now we see a scene in history future where Jesus comes and it says the, the world, the kingdom of the world that has been led by the rulers of the world and the principalities of the world, the powers of the air in history present. There is coming a time in history future that we see right here, a future time that has not happened yet, where that same kingdom will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And on that throne that he had promised King David, he will reign on it forever and ever. In case you want to know how forever was, add and ever to the end of it. That's how long Jesus is going to reign on the throne of David. So therefore, at least there's a text that we can take with us to say, I've got to heighten my view of Jesus. Whatever I thought about Jesus in my whole life, here is a text that proves to me and shows me I've got to elevate that. Jesus is so much more than whatever I could imagine. Jesus is so much more than just my personal Savior. And he is that. Amen? He is our Savior. He is, but he's so much more than our personal Lord and Savior. He's the heir to the, to the world, to the universe. And he will reign there forever and ever and ever. There's another verse I want you to jot down. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. 
This is God's relationship to the Son and how God uh, gives the authority and the honor and the glory to God the Son. And this is what it says, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So who did the exaltation here? God the Father. And so you may ask the question, well, how does God the Father and God the Son relate in eternity? Well, it is God the Father who has the authority over the universe, but he did not create or do anything outside of the will and the pleasure and the privilege of God the Son. And God the Father, being in relationship to God the Son, the Son, Jesus, has in every way, as we read through the Gospels and we read through the Scripture, has submitted himself underneath the authority of the Father, willfully, desirably, does not make him any more less equal to God the Father, that he would also submit himself to the will of the Father. You hear it in the Scripture. Uh, Jesus says, I have come down not to do my own will, but the will of the He is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he says, Lord, if you are willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will. And so we see Jesus, even though in his equality with the Father, still submitting under the leadership of the Father, which does not question or mitigate or truncate the equality of God the Father and God the Son whatsoever any more than it would minimize the equality of a husband and a wife when the Scripture teaches us to do the same thing. Man and woman is equal. God the Son, God the Father are equal. And that's important as we see this. Because if you want to see how the triunity of God works as they worship together, we have God who holds the universe in his hands and the authority thereof. And then it is his pleasure to then take it and to bestow it in honor to the Son. And so it pleases God the Father to exalt the Son, to highly exalt him, and to bestow on the Son the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen to this. To the glory of God the Father. And so God is most glorified when he bestows and exalts the Son. And that is at least a peek and a look into the relationship of the Trinity to exalt one another in complete equality, to honor one another, to bestow glory to one another, all to the glory of the Trinity. I didn't, that was not even in my notes, praise the Lord. But here's why that's important for you and I. Because when we look at exalting Christ right here, you don't see a lot of people in the world exalting Christ right here. I get it. I get it. I live, this, I live in the same world you do. We have the same zip code, some of us. Uh, and I get it. When we look around, we see people not living to the glory of God. They're not exalting and elevating Christ. They don't look anything like Philippians 2, 9 through 11, when everyone's going to bow down to the name of Christ. But we showed you in history past how God has promised all this is going to happen. It's all going to come to pass. And we see in history future when that is also fulfilled as we are waiting for that time to come. And we live uh, in the right now, the already but not yet. These things are already as if they were done, although they have not happened yet. And that has been, at least in part, proved through the fact that of you in here right now, notwithstanding if you're in here only because of your kids, which I hope that isn't the case, But if you're in here, it's because in some way you are understanding the fact that you must exalt Christ and bow the knee to his lordship. 
And so therefore, at least in a small way, in the church of God throughout the world, we have an outpost of the realities of eternity when we all, every week, and I hope all week long, we do exactly what this says. We bow at the knees to Christ and we exalt him to the glory of God the Father. And what I, all I want to do is give you a couple of tools to help you do that, at least some ways of thought, some ways of thinking as you leave this auditorium and start thinking about how can I exalt Jesus? How can I heighten my view of Jesus this Christmas and for the rest of my life? One, you need to start obeying Jesus today. Or one of the big things about looking forward to the return of Christ in history future, it can get us not thinking enough about today in light of eternity. You see, I'm not saying uh, don't, don't think about eternity. I've heard pastors say things that I take offense to, and they say people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I just want to, I want to St. Nicholas slap those people, you know, to think about like, you, there's no way in their, in their mind they're saying we can think too much about eternity and be no earthly good today. And I'm like, that's not what the whole idea of thinking about eternity is. The Bible teaches me that I ought to keep my mind on things above, that I ought to also always be anticipating the return of Christ, that I always ought to be looking forward to the culmination and the consummation of the redemptive plan of Christ through eternity, that I get to inherit that blessing. And so therefore, my mind's always staying there, but it should always impact my here and now. And if we're going to do that, we've got to start obeying Jesus today. We can't wait for eternity future when Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven and on earth that Jesus is Lord. We're not going to wait for that to happen in eternity. We're going to be doing that now. That is the prayer that Jesus teaches the disciples. Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done right now on earth as it is in heaven. The realities of the things that we're promised in eternity aren't things that we wait for for eternity. They're things that we apply to our lives today. So we got to start obeying Jesus today, and that means in our marriages. That means in the way, in the difficulty it is to raise our children in a way that honors the Lord, and it makes us do things, and it makes us commit to things that we would not do otherwise. That's what obeying the Lord does. That's what obeying anything does. That's why we have a law, right? Because it makes me do, the law and the Constitution, things that otherwise I would not do. That's what obeying the Lord does. That's why Jesus says, if you want to obey me, you have to deny yourself. The whole idea of following Christ is that we first have to often deny ourselves in order to do the things that would be in obedience to Christ because he is the exalted Christ, because he is the heir to the throne of David. Therefore, he is that first word we have in Isaiah 9, 6, everlasting. He is never going to end. He has been here since eternity past. He is here in eternity present, and he will be here for eternity future. There was not a time in which Christ was not so, and there will never be a time in which Christ will not be so. Therefore, I live right now and for the rest of my life knowing that Christ is the everlasting, that Christ is the one in whom all of my adoration and all of my commitments are given to. Second, and I've said it briefly, but you cannot think about the manger without remembering the throne. And I mean that, and if you can think about that, especially during the season, it's going to help you grow your faith, and here's why. We live in a culture that talks a lot about the, the baby Jesus. We have a culture where you see the nativities sold throughout the stores, seen in the people's front yards, seen on commercials, uh, and people aren't afraid of baby Jesus because he's so innocent. Right? This is called the humanity of Christ, which appeals to humans. 
which is a fine thing because the incarnation is everything to us because Christ became like us. God came down to take our place. And so in so many ways, it is such the wonderful part of the gospel, but it can't be the gospel unless he was more than a man. And so in a culture that we live in where people are, are so easily enthralled about an infant because they don't have to, in their mind, have to give allegiance to an infant, uh, the, the infant in their mind has no authority no ability, no cognitive capacity to lead my life and to tell me where I ought to go, it's easy to keep Jesus in a manger. But if you would always remember in your own life, when you see a manger, remember the throne. So at least in your own personal life, every time you pass a manger scene, every time you pass a nativity scene, you will look at that manger and your mind will immediately go to the throne. And that is a great way in your own life to say, when I see the manger, I think of the throne. And therefore, I can say every day I'm going to obey Christ because he came here because he was the rightful heir to there. And finally, I want you to write this in number three. Number three, you need to anticipate the physical, eternal reign of Christ. And I get this. Listen, I get it, especially if you're, if you're either new to the faith or if you're somebody who doesn't do a lot of study through Scripture, and I'm not just meaning an intellectual, academic study through Scripture, although I think that is important and part of the faith and part of the growing nature of your own discipleship. Uh, but I know this may be hard, especially with a lack of knowledge of what is to come, but I hope at least what I've given you is two scenes in which God has promised this and God will fulfill this. And so that means for you and I, as we're stuck in the middle, the already but not yet, we must anticipate the physical eternal reign of Christ. Because if not, why are you here? If not, why are we doing what we're doing? Like if Christ isn't coming back, if he's not going to come and bring us to himself, then why are we here? In culture, some people call this moral therapeutic deism. And without getting into too much detail, it's simply this. Some people think about God because it makes them feel better about themselves. But we're not Christians because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We're Christians because we realize that in and of ourselves we're no good at all. And so therefore we needed an eternal God who stepped into time and space and took our place because he was born in a manger and exalted to the throne through his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection eternally. That has nothing to do with moral therapeutic deism. This has everything to do with you and I recognizing that we are who we are today because Christ is coming back. And so therefore we must live in light of the physical. He's going to have a real body. He's not a disembodied spirit. He's coming back physically, and he's going to come, and he's going to be here eternally, reigning and ruling. And if you would do those two things, when you see a major, think of the throne. When you understand that Christ is coming back physically to reign eternally, you're going to live in such a great space to start obeying Jesus today because all these things are very real, and they're coming, and they're promised by God, and God is a promise-keeping God. That was the first covenant. You ready for the second one? All right. The second covenant this morning is the Abrahamic covenant, or what we call God's promise to Abraham. Uh, and you initially find the, the promise in Genesis 12. You can jot that down, but I actually want you to turn to a different one. I want you to turn to Genesis 17. It's given in, verse, in chapter 12, but it's recapitulated in Genesis 17 in a way where it helps us understand the whole grand scheme of God's plan to Abraham. 
So here we are in Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Remember, this is right after uh, Abraham had disobeyed God uh, and had an illegitimate child through Hagar and he had Ishmael. And Abraham was in some way trying to take that promise in Genesis 12 and make it his own by trying to make it happen before God's timing was, was ready, before God made it happen. And so after this had happened, God came back and said, listen, I know you're an old man. Right? I know that you don't think you're going to have a kid, but let me repeat to you the promise that I gave you. And so he says, I'm the God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. You know, Abraham, Abram means exalted father, because that's all Abraham wanted to do is just be a father. He just wanted a son. He just wanted a, give me a son, God. I just want to be a, a father. And so God talks to Abraham. He says, Listen. Your name's no longer going to be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. God said, my promise to you isn't a son, it's a multitude. And he says this, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. He gives him a name that is in concert with his promise to him. And this is what he says this promise will entail. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into a nation, and listen to this, and kings shall come from you. So you can't separate the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant because they're tied together. God gave this problem to Abraham, which is the great, 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 great grandfather of King David. And so he's even looking at Abraham before David was a twinkle in Abraham's eye. And he says, kings will come from you. And I will establish, listen to this, verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. Just make a little note there. You notice that it is not plural. If you have your Hebrew lexicon or if you just know Hebrew and you're opening up a Hebrew Bible now, which, wow, okay, uh, you'll notice that that is a singular word. That noun singular. It's not plural. And he says, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Again, the promise isn't a temporary promise. It isn't a promise that ends simply here in time and space. It is a covenant that will last forever. And so what we see, especially as we're in the New Testament, as we live in the time of the New Testament, the promises of God fulfilled, we see that all of the promises of Abraham find their fulfillment in Jesus, who is the only one who can mediate an everlasting covenant, right? Just the same way that the only person who can mediate the covenant between God and Abraham was the everlasting heir of David, which was Jesus. In the same way, it works the same way with the Abrahamic covenant. Only an eternal, immortal person can mediate an eternal covenant. And so therefore, we are waiting on a resurrected, immortal life that we have found in Christ. And so we have... Abraham is the proprietor, right? The owner, the sole owner of a covenant that God had made him. 
And we have Jesus, who was Abraham's legitimate heir, which remember I told you to jot down Matthew 1, 1 earlier, because that was the whole point of Matthew as he wrote the gospel, to look at and say, you guys need to remember that Jesus is the legitimate heir to who? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why did Matthew in his first verse try to point a direct line to the fact that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David? Because all the eternal promises of God were given to David and Abraham, and who had to be the heir of that to receive those promises? It had to be the rightful heir of, of everlasting covenant, which we find through Christ. Are we on the same page? And I want you to see this because I don't want you to miss this. I want you to see how you can see Jesus as the everlasting father because he is the heir and the rightful owner of these covenants, and he fulfilled them perfectly. I want you to see this, that it was Jesus ultimately who had the authority to both possess the blessing of Abraham and then to also distribute it to the people of God. Because you realize that's the only way that you and I are Christians is because our father, in a real spiritual sense, is Father Abraham. You learned that song, didn't you? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. Yeah, so let's just praise the Lord. Yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't go to like a kid's Bible class. I didn't go to church. I had to learn that this week. <laughs> okay, anyway, because I always knew, but I didn't know the last. Let's just praise the Lord. I'd have murdered that. All right. Uh, the point there is you say things, either you say what you mean or you're saying something you don't know, right? You, you just said that you are one of them, that you're a child of Abraham. Well, how in the world are you a child of Abraham? Are you Jewish? Are you a Hebrew? You're not. So how are you a father, or how are you an, a child of Abraham? Through Christ, through the rightful heir to that covenant. Now, I'd love to show you where the Bible says that. Turn to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. In the middle of the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3. I hope you're being encouraged this morning. There in verse 13 in chapter 3, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Well, there's, there's the, the, the point of the, the necessity of Christ being crucified on a cross was that he was cursed and he was the curse for us. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, listen to this, so in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The only way that you and I could have received a promise that did not belong to us is if the rightful heir bestowed it to us and invited us in to partake of a promise that was not ours to have. And so therefore, Christ became a curse for us so that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham, the promise that God made to Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Then he says to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls to it or adds to it once it has been ratified. We know that, don't we? Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, listen, I'm not, I'm, this is not my opinion. This is what the scripture is saying. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring is what it was saying, who is Christ. The whole time, that singular, ver that singular noun in the Hebrew that we see back in Genesis 17, all the while had Christ at the center of it. 
All the while, the offspring that God had promised Abraham was always Jesus. And it was always Jesus, the rightful heir to this eternal covenant that was always in mind, who then has the ability in his everlasting nature to then bestow upon you and I something that was never ours to have. Isn't that good? So that means there is a way for, for people to enter into the family of God, to enter into the eternal promises of God through Abraham, but not through Abraham, through Christ. And so this is what I want you to write on point number two. Sum that up by saying this. You need to admit that Jesus is your only way into God's family. Admit that Jesus is your only way into God's family. I know it's simple, isn't it? But yet profound. When we think about these covenants and we don't marry them like we ought to and see that all of Scripture, the meta narrative of Scripture is telling us one story. We've been taught our whole lives to take this story and then take this story and to take this story. And what we hope to do here at Compass is to tie all those together so you can see one story of God's redemptive plan through, for mankind. And so we have to see that we too can be children of Abraham, but it isn't because of Abraham, it's because of Christ. For instance, I have a stepfather. I call him dad because he's my dad. His last name is Howard. My last name is Thomas. But I was allowed to be in his family because of a transaction called marriage. He married my mother uh, at 18, and he became my dad. Now, I did not have a biological right to be in my dad's family. I didn't. My blood is different than his blood. My name's different than his. Uh, the situations and the mistakes that made me a fatherless child with no father in the home had nothing to do with him until he owned it until he invited me in and made me his son. And therefore, it didn't have anything to do with my biology. It didn't have anything to do with my problems. It had everything to do with his solution to fix the problem that I had, that my dad invited me to join his family. I want you to turn to one more verse, Revelation 7. Revelation 7. I want you to turn there because you're going to see some kind of family reunion in Revelation 7. You're going, to see, you're going to see some kind of, just some kind of crazy family reunion, some kind of just crazy, diverse, just you look at these people and say, there's no way you guys are related. Right? It's the same way they look at me and my dad. You know, we don't even look alike. And they say, there's no way you're related. But I'm like, we're related in every way. And I want you to see it. Revelation 7, 9 through 11. And again, this is the Apostle John. He says, after this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Hold up. What was the promise that God made to Abraham? That I would make you a father of a multitude of nations. And then right here it says, in heaven, around the throne of God, I saw an amount of people I could not number from every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's a family reunion. Those are children of Abraham through Christ, who although they had no biological privilege to be a part of that, they were, as Scripture says, grafted in by faith through Christ, because our everlasting Father in a very real way, Jesus, 
invited us to be a part with all of our problems and all of our issues and, and all of the family members in our life who, who didn't do well by the Lord and yet looked at us and said, I will make a way for you to be a part of my family. The Bible teaches it in a couple of ways. John 14, 6, he says this, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except for through me. And so we see that, right? We see that this covenant has a door, and the door is Christ. There was no way to get to God except for through the covenant bearer, Christ, who fulfilled the covenant of David, which enthrones him for eternity, and the covenant of Abraham, which makes him the proprietor and the owner of all the blessings of all the nations. And so it would therefore glorify God to exalt Jesus and bestow on him the name that is above every name, because it is through that name of Christ that we have the nations represented before God in eternity. Come on. You don't make this stuff up. It's right there. And so for us, we do see an everlasting father in Christ. Is he God the father? He is not God the father. But he is everlasting because he, because he is who he is. And the Davidic covenant was always pointing to him. Therefore, we were looking for an everlasting king. And we have one. So we have an everlasting king. And we were looking for a, a paternal promise keeper and an heir to Abraham. And we found him. He was revealed to us in Christ. So in a very real way, we have an eternal father. And you and I have a father in Christ, although not God the Father, but a very real way through the covenants that have been given to man, someone in Christ who has adopted us according to Ephesians 1.5. We have an everlasting father through the lens of the covenants who gives us an inheritance in Ephesians 1.11. And we have, through John 14, 3, the promise of Christ to say, I'm going away. And I'm going and I'm going to prepare a home for you. I'm going to go prepare a place for you and then I'm coming back for you. When it comes to the fulfillment of these promises, we have in Christ a fatherly figure that is more than just a fatherly nurturing figure. We have someone who's fulfilled all of these covenants, and he says, and I'm coming back. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return, and I'm going to bring you into the kingdom that has been promised that I have fulfilled, and you'll be a part of the nations before the God the Father in eternity because I fulfilled those promises for you. So in a very real way, without committing any kind of heresy, without committing any kind of wrong doctrinal beliefs, as we look at the covenants, we can look at Christ and say we very well, with great confidence, have in Christ an everlasting Father. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And God, thank you that it isn't just so simple. God, we like to think, at least in our minds, that we just want it all simple, and that if it's just simple, it's easy for us to understand. But what we see, God, and in the manifold wisdom that you have, God, in your uh, infinite nature, uh, we see in your word a reflection of that. That everything isn't just so easy to see immediately, but we have to have union with you. We have to have intimacy with you. We have to have relationship with you in such a way where we're growing that relationship so we can see your word and you can teach us things through it from the time that we're five and eight and ten 
all the way until we're 100, that there's never a lack of wisdom and a lack of infinite knowledge in your word that would ever leave us at any place in our walk without more to see and more to learn and more confidence and faith to walk in obedience to you. So my prayer this morning is that we see Christ in the view of the covenants to David and to Abraham as the fulfillment of those being our everlasting Father. And that through that we would see the need to obey you, to love you, to have confidence in you in all of these things. So I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.